Certainly for some of us, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we feel quite overwhelmed, which is certainly what I feel when I read the Sermon on the Mount. So one of the things to note about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's almost like the Ten Commandments have been taken and Jesus has gone deeper with them and beyond them. So the story of the Sermon on the Mount finds its genesis in the Ten Commandments. So I'm going to start by doing a little recap. So we're going to see the context to start off with. So most of you know the story of the children of Israel in Egypt. Basically, they had become economic slaves and they were deeply oppressed And God said to Moses, I want you to come and call my people out. And what happened was that um, Pharaoh resisted this. And how many plagues did God have to send before the people got free? Your question for the morning. Ten. Everyone happy with that? Okay, first slide. Okay, those are the ten plagues. We're not going to go into those, but I want just to look at this last one here, because there is something very notable about the last plague to get um, the people out. These are the words that are spoken. And I actually, I've switched it around. I've put verse 13 before verse 12. Apologies for those who don't like me doing that, but this is it. I'm doing it because it's easier to understand. We have seen nine plagues. God has sent nine plagues on the people. And then we get this. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both peoples and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, the notable thing about that plague is that all the other nine were like natural disasters. They were just sent. They were sort of like circumstantial. But what do you notice about this one is that God says, this one, I'm coming It's far more serious. I'm stepping down into this one. And it's not just dangerous for the Egyptians. It's dangerous for you. Because this is not a natural disaster. This is the holy God stepping down among them. And we see two very similar situations in the Old Testament One was when Moses encountered God in the burning bush. And this is what that passage says. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then we have another notable example. 
which is Isaiah. Isaiah in the temple. And what happened is that Isaiah saw the glory of God. And his response was, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And what this is showing us is that when the glory of God comes down tangibly among the people, the response is one that we feel exposed. We are aware of the mighty presence and the glory and how we don't mark, measure up in relation to that, which is why... Um, so we'll come on to why. But then I want to t give you an example. Tim Keller, I've been listening. My children have introduced me to Tim Keller. I, he, they say I should have known him all these years, but I didn't on the internet. But I was listening to him, and he gave an example. He said that he, uh, he has a friend who's a counsellor, and she works in the Ivy League universities at, um, uh, of America. So that's the equivalent of Oxford and Cambridge. And she, he said that when many students go to the Ivy League universities, what they experience is what she calls a self-quake. Because they are now confronted by a whole raft of people who are so much better than them. And what happens is they have a meltdown. Because it's like they were used to getting A's, Suddenly, someone's got to get the C's, and they're getting the C's, and they have a meltdown. So it's not that anyone is pointing the finger at them. It is in the presence of glory, and we know that even in the presence of each other's glory, we have meltdowns. We know that. Those things that are more beautiful, more lovely, when we stand next to, we find that's hard. In the presence of the glory of God... What we are told is the experience is that you have a bit of a meltdown. That's the first point. Okay, now we know that the children of Israel have been brought out of Egypt. They've had all these plagues and God releases them. And in the end, it is through the uh, redemption that comes finally when the blood is put on the lintel and they are brought out. But before the Ten Commandments are given... This is what God says. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And Tom Keller makes this point, which is really important. God did not give the law before he set them free. He did not give them the law as something that was conditional on them being set free. They were given it as a response to the promise of blessing as they entered into being the people, the treasured possession of God. It was a love response. It was a response in seeing the holiness of a good God who brought them into freedom. It was not a stick with which to beat them. And that is always, 
always the order. And I know I said this when I was speaking on Colossians. You do not bring out the laws without, first of all, understanding that it is the grace that comes first. It is the story of the blood that must always come first. So, now moving to the Sermon on the Mount. I promise I won't be long. Actually, just to start off with, you might find this quite interesting. I'm not going to do the Sermon on the Mount. This is just an intro because others are going to do the Sermon on the Mount. But I thought you might find it interesting just to look at progression in the Bible. So just read these two. I'll read them to you. These are just two going from Exodus to Deuteronomy. We have, this is about coveting. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's Exodus. That comes first. Later version, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servants, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do you, is there any difference you see in those? Any thoughts? The first one, they're all together, aren't they? Neighbors. It's house first, then it's wife. Yep, it is. It's house first, then it's wife. And then what about the next one? There is a separation, isn't it? Can you see that this has become a little bit... This is The wife is the possession. This is now moving to the wife being a person in her own right, separate from the possession possession. We're seeing progression. We see progressive revelation in the Bible. Yeah? And then we move to, you shall not commit adultery. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in her heart. That's the Sermon on the Mount. What we're moving from is outward action to what? To your hearts. Can you see this progression? We're moving from almost like matter and action to individuality. We're moving from what you just outwardly do to what you have hidden in your heart. That is the progression of the Bible. It is a a progressive revelation, both of the blood of Jesus and the power of of the good news and the, the value of the individual and the value of... so And the importance of the individual heart. Now, um, again, back to Tim Keller. This is a very interesting little story that he told. He said he, he has a friend who is a professor of English um, and she, who teaches at a major university. And she gave everyone this exercise to do. And it was... Read the Sermon on the Mount and write a response. Now, many of them had never read the Sermon on the Mount. I have to say I have to reread the Sermon on the Mount to remember it. They had never heard of the Sermon on the Mount. A few may have heard it through school. Now, what do you think their response was? I'll tell you. It's not, the, <laughs> it's not a quiz. Okay, here was their response. This is two examples of two. 
I did not like the sermon. It made me feel I had to be perfect, and no one can do that. The things that are said in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be angry is like murder. These are the most extreme, stupid human statements I have ever heard. Fair? My response to the Sermon on the Mount, I find it terrifying. There's lots good in it, but I do find it terrifying. And I'm starting to understand increasingly why I find it terrifying. Um, now, and, and what she said was, in the statement she read, her students were desperately running for cover. And I think that's right. You run for cover when you read the Sermon on the Mount. Unless, and this is the unless about the Sermon on the Mount, why it's good news. When Jesus died, there is a passage in Josephus, who is a Roman historian, and he said that at Passover, and Passover was only a few hours in the afternoon, this must have been done in cohorts, 256,500 lambs were slaughtered. Do you not think that sounds ghastly? How much blood is running with that? That's not a, a pleasant sight or a smell. And that's written um, 66 to 70 uh, AD. This is a, Roman, a Jewish Roman historian. And in the midst of that, one man was being slaughtered. I'm sorry, I feel really moved when I say that. Because this is the crux that we have to understand when we approach the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon, and very interestingly enough, also, when you go back to Exodus 12, when it talks about the lambs that are going to be used in Passover, it's very interesting. It makes this very strange comment. It says that you are to take as many lambs that meets the appetites of the people there. You've got to have enough that people can have enough. So it was almost like it was saying, you know what, for every one of those appetites that the Sermon on the Mount talks about, there has to be enough of the lamb to cover it. And for every bit of God's wrath that has to be satisfied, there has to be enough of the lamb to satisfy it. And it's written in small print, and it's only a small line, but it's very powerful, and it's there. And finally, can you see how blood is all around the stories of Jesus? Because the life is in the blood. It is the power of the blood that will enable us to stand close to the Sermon on the Mount, knowing once again that just as with the exile, God released them first before he invited them into to the obedience and walking with him. In the same way, 
before we enter the Sermon on the Mount, we have to embrace the blood of Jesus. We have to know that God has set us free first, that he will do for us, which we frankly cannot do when we stand next to the Sermon on the Mount. The reason why it's not scary for those who love the Lord is that first of all, we are appropriating the grace and the blood of Jesus of what has been done for us. And increasingly what I've seen, why I'm scared when I experience it, is because I just haven't understood the grace of God. Just haven't understood the grace of God. Just haven't understood that when I stand before those statements, it's not a stick. It's, this is what God is like. And he is inviting me to enjoy and share that with him because of the blood of Jesus. And that is something that we cannot enter into these passages without realizing. And maybe if there's one journey you're going to go on through the rest of your life, and I feel this, you know, I'm going to be 60 this year. One of the things that I feel very strongly is that I just do not understand the depth of the grace and the blood of Jesus. Paul said, I only preach Christ crucified. There is a reason. And that means because as today, as I stand before something like the Sermon on the Mount, or any situation which exposes the horror of my own heart, I would be destroyed if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus. I would. And this is the wonderful verse that Paul writes he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And um, when I was at university, there was a man called Eric Alexander, who was the most wonderful preacher who I was to go to listen to. And Courtesy of Eric Alexander, this is what he says. He says, the word spare, we understand the emotional content of the word spare. If you saw someone suffering, if it was your child, if it was a family, you would want to spare them that. You would feel it emotionally. You would want to rescue them. You would want to put them in Put yourself in their place. And God knew what it felt like to want to spare his son. He knew what it felt like emotionally, but he did not spare his son. So we can understand what that feels like. And so when Jesus was on the cross and he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? We need to understand that it was also a very grieved father who was turning his back on a very beloved son. And that was done for us. And so finally, I want to end by reading just where this passage comes from. And don't worry about the words predestined, which might be in it, but... I'm just going to stick this final one up. Everything, the whole universe, we may be an unfashionable bit of this galaxy, but the whole universe is centered upon this person. 
this person, because there is no love greater than this. There is no sacrifice greater than this. So I will just read to you Hebrews 12. Oh, no, this is a different passage. Sorry. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, as I finish. You have not come to a mountain that can... Uh, to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen.